right? Uh, I, I know I'm <laughs> falling over. I'm going to fall off the side here. So uh, let's have a bit of, uh, let's start off with a bit of Dhamma discussion and, and questions and comments or whatever you like. And then if uh, it dries up, I can always talk a little bit. Uh, get good at talking after a while, being a monk for so long. So uh, is there anything from that anyone would like to discuss from this morning or anything? Anything really, if you want to, if you have any questions or whatever. Uh, we can discuss that now. If you have any disagreements, it's okay. Complaints, well, let's, let's leave the complaints aside. Uh, but apart from that, uh, so... Uh, <coughs> From this morning, yeah, please. Okay, let's take the questions from online then. Yeah. So one leftover question um, was, uh, what is the relationship between acceptance and right effort? Between acceptance and right effort, uh, um, in a way, acceptance is right effort. Uh, yeah. So that is right effort is kind of strange because. Uh, Right effort doesn't necessarily mean that you are actually doing anything. It doesn't mean that you are applying yourself, anything like that. Right effort, letting go, is right effort. Yeah, Acceptance is right effort. Letting be is right effort. The ability to just to be mindful is right effort. Not doing anything is right effort. So it's kind of strange. Yeah, and Right effort is about really... Ultimately, it is about developing good qualities. So anything you do that develops a good quality in the mind, that is right effort. Yeah, so it can be, like I said before, like nudging the mind a little bit in the right direction. It can just be allowing things to be without doing anything at all. So anything which gives rise, which kind of moves you forward on the path of meditation, is right effort. And acceptance is one of those things. So... Uh, yeah, a lot of the uh, things that we're trying to do on the Buddhist path, it takes quite a bit of contemplation and thinking about things. Uh, yeah, so if you're going to be able to, for example, if you're going to be able to forgive other people, uh, how can we forgive people? Uh, sometimes we say forgive, but how do you actually do it? <laughs> it's easy to say, but it's not always easy to do. Uh, and uh, the answer is you need a particular way of thinking about people to be able to forgive them. You need to kind of get in the right mind state. Uh, and what is that right mind state? Well, it's basically the idea that people don't really know what they're doing in this world, right? Uh, people have no idea. People don't. People are kind of walking in darkness, in delusion, uh, and they're kind of you know stubbing their toes all the place because there's no lights to see what to, <laughs> where you shouldn't be going. Uh, and once you start to understand the delusion that people are under in the world, uh, how can you not forgive them when they do crazy things? Uh, yeah, when people kind of say something bad to you, which probably happens almost every day. Uh, yeah, every day people say stupid things in this world. Uh, so what are you going to think? You, you know, you're going to say that actually they are just, uh, you know, they had a bad day, they, things weren't going right for them, uh, they don't know kind of what it really is, what it is to live, live a good life. Uh, and because of that, that's why they do bad things. Uh, and this is kind of where it comes from. Uh, and I think the, uh, personally, I think the majority of people in the world, uh, they actually want to be kind. Uh, they want to do the right thing. Uh, because I think deep down, every one of us, we know that when you are kind towards others, uh, when you treat other people well, uh, we know that you feel good about yourself. Yeah, deep down we know that. We know we actually we really want to do these things. Uh, and still even though we want to be kind, even though we want to live an ethical and moral life, uh, 
Very often we can't. Yeah. You have, I'm sure you have all, everyone here probably wants to be you know, kind all the time, if you could. Is there anyone who doesn't want to be kind all the time? Everyone wants to be kind all the time, right? I'd like to be kind all the time. Sometimes I get these thoughts in my mind yeah, that are kind of leading me astray. That's terrible when that happens. I go to Ajahn Brahma and say, Ajahn, please, what's going on? No, I don't do that. <coughs> um, and uh, so and that is kind of the despairing thing, right? When people actually, deep down, they want to be kind. They want to do the right thing. Yeah? They want to be uh, of service to the world, of service to themselves and everyone else. But they can't. Uh, and the reason why they can't is because their habits are so strong. Yeah? Yeah? And I, you know, if everyone here knows, sometimes you get angry even though you don't want to get angry. Yeah? It's just habits coming out of you. It's what you have been doing for lifetimes probably. Yeah? And uh, at least many times in this life, if you don't believe in other lives. <laughs> and uh, so it comes out, uh, whether you want to or not. Uh, and this is uh, kind of uh, uh, why the spiritual practice is often hard, because the spiritual practice uh, is actually about overcoming habits. Uh, and overcoming habits is very difficult. Uh, and when you know that, uh, you become more forgiving other people, uh, because you know how hard it is. Uh, and this is like a very important part of the idea of non-self, yeah, anatta, the idea of non-self, uh, the idea that we are basically not really in control of ourselves. Uh, we are kind of the, uh, we are under the uh, thumb of habits and things from the past, uh, and it's very difficult to kind of get out from those habits and those things. Uh, this is what non-self is about. Uh, so when someone does something nasty, it's not because of they they want to be nasty. Uh, it's just that it's their non-self. Nature, their habits coming out in a bad way. You happen to be there at the wrong time in the wrong place. And so you have to bear the brunt of those uh, negative things uh, coming out of that person. Uh, does that make sense to anyone? Uh, yeah, it makes sense to you. Okay, good. Uh, I'm not the only one that makes sense to you. Great, okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yes, please. Uh, yeah, we've got a, there's one person over here who would like to... Uh, would you like to? Yeah? Yeah? Uh, probably this is a too big a question for my shoes, and pardon me, I am a very novice and an immature practitioner. Uh-huh. Uh, but this is uh, something I'm struggling with uh, for quite a while in terms of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just brought it up, I mean, about self and no self mm. and the question of context versus contents. Um, you know, usually when, you know, mind is very thin and you're not so caught up in the contents of what's going on, you have this... Um, the way only to explain it is the the line between content and context kind of thins out. You are just this. There is the experience itself. Yeah. And now it usually happens either with effort um, when the mind is thin, or occasionally, very rarely, you know, just like that. Mm. My question is: is th- because you know. Um, when that happens, there are no attachments as such. Um, it's, it's, I cannot even say what is you of you is freeing because it just is, but either ways, um, 
is there some way, and probably the entire practice is to stabilize it, mm. but my question is, is there something during the practice or a particular kind of meditation or something um, when you are still caught up and we are still trying to, you know, um, probably, I don't know if I'm hooked on to an experience of sort or mm. trying to get there, if there is anything which can be done during practice um, where, you know, the trying, 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 and then it just mm. falls up. But, but it, it takes quite a bit of effort, prolonged practice to get there of sorts. Yeah. I don't know if I make sense. Like yeah, no, so you, you're saying you, you want to get to the point where you don't try anymore and things are kind of natural and easy and mindful yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And how do you get there? Yeah, well, the, the, um, the way, you know, it's very interesting the way that the Buddha explains meditation in the sutta. Suttas are the kind of the discourses, the other word of the Buddha in a sense. And uh, the, the way he explains it is that he essentially says you don't need to make an effort. Uh, you don't need to even have an intention uh, there's a kind of famous phrase in the suttas where he says, karaniya," uh, which means that no intention needs to be done, or not needs, but actually shouldn't be done. That's what he says. Uh. And he says that the process of meditation is according to nature. It's dhammata. Dhammata means according to nature. Dhamma is nature, right? Uh, the lawfulness of nature. Uh. So dhammata means according to nature. So if something is in accordance with nature, uh, if you try to do it, uh, you can't do nature. Yeah? Nature has to happen by itself. You can't make nature happen. Yeah? This is the famous simile that I, I think Adam Brahm sometimes uses. Is there, you, know, you have a, a, a mother with a small child, and she's going to teach the child how to grow a plant. Yeah? So she kind of puts a sunflower seed in the kind of soil and kind of waters it a bit and says to her, okay, now your job is to come and water this seed every day, and you will see how the plant grows, right? So after a while, the kind of plant comes to the surface and it starts to kind of grow, and it kind of, and after a while, this child gets very impatient because it's going so slowly. Yeah, it's, well, it's only a few kind of millimeters every day. It's just too slow. In millimeters, okay, you know, fraction of an inch, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I forget that I'm in the U.S. now, so you have to kind of use the American terminology. But so, um, and then of course the child gets impatient, so it grabs hold of the plant uh, and pulls it. Uh, that goes against nature. Nature has to take its own course. Uh, it has to go. If you start pulling the plant, uh, you destroy the plant, basically. Yeah. And it's the same thing with meditation practice. If something is to happen according to nature, uh, you can't make it happen. You can't force it to happen. You can't use the chetana. Chetana is the intention or the will to make things happen. Uh. So the Buddha says that the, um, the whole process of meditation, all the way to the very end of the path, uh, which is like liberation yeah, from suffering or whatever, all the whole process is automatic. Yeah. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is that you have to go backwards on, in that process to the very beginning point. Yeah. And then you have to look at the beginning point. What is that? That is what you have to strengthen. Yeah. Because if everything else is automatic, well, then the beginning point yeah, is the critical point yeah, because everything will start from that. Yeah. So what is the beginning point? Yeah? What do you think, yeah? <laughs> uh, it's a good guess, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a good guess, but it's not actually quite, quite right, because mindfulness itself actually comes from causes. Uh, mindfulness is some, not something that is just there, yeah, it has its own causes in a sense. Uh, so the Buddha says, sila, or morality, or kindness, is the root of everything, uh, yeah? 
if you are a truly kind person, if you truly have a good heart, if you have compassion for all beings, uh, if you have a sense of metta and love for the world, uh, that is where the whole process comes from. Uh. And uh, it, it's quite simple in a way, because if you know the, the reason why it's so hard to be mindful is because the mind is, uh, as long as you have desires and ill will and these kind of things, the mind is going to be in the future, it's going to be in the past, because uh, the nature of these things is to be in the future and the past. Uh. But if you are kind, you're going to feel good about yourself. You're going to have a sense of self-worth. Yeah, everyone is looking for self-esteem. That's the path to self-esteem. Just be kind. That's the path. You're going to feel good about yourself. And when you feel good about yourself, you're going to have this inner feeling of happiness about how you live. Yeah, you're going to. Be, it's not kind of a, an ego thing at all. It's just a kind of quiet sense of being pleased with how you live. Yay, me! I'm doing all right. In a, in a good way, if you know what I mean. And from that, because your mind is not going into the future and the past, it's kind of in the present, and you have the joy that comes with feeling good about yourself, those are the two fundamental things that makes meditation possible. Yeah, Because if you are happy in the here and now, the mind will be present. And when the mind is present, you tend to be happy in the here and now. That is where the thing just goes by itself. So the critical thing is this idea of morality. But morality is very broad in Buddhism. It's not just don't kill and don't steal. It is, you know, it's about actually positive morality, how to be kind, how to be supportive, how to be compassionate, how to think in the right way. And it is very, very challenging to be moral in the way the Buddha taught. It's actually very hard. It's a very high bar to clear, yeah? because you know, to be, have compassion all the time is not easy. Yeah? To be kind all the time is not easy at all. Yeah? So that is where the practice lies. Yeah? And uh, the more you're able to live like that, and you have to integrate it into your entire life. Yeah? Your entire life has to be like that. Sometimes people think that this is my spiritual side, this is my worldly side. No, 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 no. That is, that's no good. Yeah? Everything is your spiritual life. Everything. Yeah? From even when you dream at night, to make your spiritual dreams. Yeah? <laughs> it's true. You think I'm joking? It's true. Spiritual dreams. Have you heard about spiritual dreams? There's a story of that I hear. This is a. I'm not sure if I should tell this story, but uh, some stories are kind of half secret, right? I can't, I'm divulging secrets here. That's kind of. I'm not sure if that's a good idea. But uh, there are, I know people who uh, they dream at night, uh, and they have dreams that are so powerful. And this is one person who told me this. He said he was dreaming that he was bowing down to somebody. Uh, now, if you have a lot of faith, yeah, if you really believe that the Buddha was awake and he was the greatest spiritual master in human history, or you have faith in some other person who may be a great meditation master, uh, bowing can be profoundly blissful uh, because you are bowing to something very beautiful. Yeah, you're bowing to something wisdom, uh, kindness, compassion, understanding. It's wonderful to bow down to these things. Uh, usually, we bow down to movie stars. Uh, that's a bad idea, right? That's, yeah, that's our usual kind of. Uh, um, people that we look up to in this world, or some people do anyway. Yeah. And uh, so, and he said that when he bowed down to this person in his dream, uh, he becomes so blissful. Uh, he woke up straight away, yeah, because the bliss was so powerful. Went straight into a deep state of samadhi meditation, straight from that. Uh. That's what I mean by spiritual dreams, right? Uh, so this is where your mind inclines so strongly to the spiritual path. Uh, and that, you know, you, you, you dream about these things. That's literally what is going on there. So uh, it is kind of really permeated in your life. Uh, so that is what you have to do. Uh, and that is where the challenge really is. Uh, 
And, uh, and uh, you know, if people really understood the power of morality and kindness, uh, uh, if they really, the more you understand that, and that comes from the right view, yeah, the right view is that actually tells you, informs you of the power of these things. Uh, if that is there in your mind, lodged firmly in your mind, uh, strongly, you never forget it. It's always there. The mindfulness tells you almost all the time, okay, must be careful, must think in the right way. Uh, and this is why someone who is a stream enter, have you heard about the expression stream enter? Yeah? The idea is that when you become a stream enter, you are perfected in morality. You never forget it. Uh, it is so lodged in your mind. It is always kind of there at the back of your mind, uh, and it kind of guides you all the time. Uh, so we should uh, try to approximate uh, the idea of stream entry uh, and be like stream entries in our life. Uh. Say? It becomes you. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You are. Morality becomes an expression of your character, right? Yeah. That's exactly it. So the, the ego fades away. You're, nothing, you're not, not really a person in the ordinary sense anymore. Well, I guess you are in some ways, but uh, yeah, exactly. Have I even remotely answered your question? Oh, yeah? Okay. Good. <laughs> Great. Yes, at the, at the back there. Please, sir. Ajahn, I have a... Oh, this made at the back first of all. Yeah. Thank you. One second. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you you brought up earlier that you know if you look back at yourself ten years ago, there's part of you that's the same, part of you that has changed. Mm. If there's not self, what is it that gets reborn? This is something that I'm always confused about. What it, well, I mean, the the way it is explained in the uh, suttas, it's like the stream of consciousness. Uh, yeah. So it is no different from what it is now in this life. Because in this life, you look at yourself, you see that there is change, and there is a continuity, two things coming together, change and continuity. And it's no different from one life to the next one. It's the same thing as you find in this life, yeah? change and continuity. So the mind that you are now is in some ways similar to the mind you had 10 years ago, and in some ways it's different. If you go into a future life, it will be the same thing. It will be something that are similar, some things that are different. And then that, that's why you can re- recall your past lives, right? And that's why you can say, oh, that was me in the past life, because you recognize yourself uh, just as you recognize yourself uh, in this life. Uh. So that's really what it is. It's a stream of consciousness uh, kind of carrying on. Uh. I think the, prob- the reason we have, why we have such hard time with these ideas in our modern world is because we uh, tend to have this kind of physicalist and materialist outlook. Uh, that's kind of the modern outlook that we have. Uh. And I think it is... Um, fundamentally flawed outlook on the world. The world just isn't like that. Uh, one of the things I, I... I don't know much about philosophy, but I know enough to know that these ideas, you know, like materialism, the kind of the opposite of materialism is idealism, uh, where the mind is primary. Uh, yeah, the mind is the primary thing, and kind of the rest of the world kind of uh, is an expression of the mind in a certain way. And if you look at the history of philosophy, I'm talking about Western, Western philosophy now, uh, uh, you can see how it kind of it goes back and forth. It's like the fashions of the time, right? Okay, now it's fashionable to be a materialist. If you go 150 years ago, it was fashionable to be an idealist. Yeah, some of the famous German philosophers they were idealist philosophers, like Friedrich Hegel and Arthur Schopenhauer and some others as well. Who else? Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant was partly a, I, I, I don't, I, I, it sounds like I'm name dropping, which I am, because I don't really know much about these philosophers, but I, I know enough to know that they were idealists. And then, of course, the tide turned, yeah, it turned in the, uh, in the 20th century, and people became materialists. And now, I think it is slowly turning back again. 
Yeah, there's something happening in the world. And uh, those people who are in the know, who are in that sphere, they say there's something major happening. Yeah. Philosophers are starting to kind of look at the world in new ways. Scientists are taking things in a new way. Some of the uh, kind of very famous uh, neuroscientists, there's a fellow called, um, what's his name again? Uh, Christoph Koch or something like that. Uh, he's a very famous neuroscientist. He's German by birth. But I think he works here in California somewhere. I'm not sure where. And uh, he is basically now moving, you know, one of the world's form. I mean, he's very, very you know, up there. Uh, and uh, he, he's kind of moving towards uh, the mind being a fundamental aspect of nature uh, and not being a secondary kind of outcome of material phenomena or anything like that. So these are just fashions. We take these fashions far too seriously. Yeah, We are trapped in fashions. We are trapped in a certain worldview. And we kind of think that this is much more important than it actually is. And so once you see the world in that way, it opens up entirely new possibilities. And uh, the idea that somehow you get born into this world and then you die and everything comes to an end, all of that actually is far less certain once you see the world in a different way. Huh? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, please, David, yeah. Ajahn, if there's interest in ordaining but an inability to do so, um, what are the most skillful conditions that can be put into place to allow enough suffering to be let go of for the first three fetters to be completely um, unshackled, let go of. Yeah. And how does knowledge that that has occurred arise, for yeah. sure? Okay. Um, I, I would recommend people not to be too worried about the, these kind of fetters and kind of get into a particular point because... Uh, it tends to become an obstacle once you have these kind of goals uh, and uh, you become too you know, goal-oriented. I mean, this is kind of the way we are brought up in the Western culture, very goal-oriented. Uh, you have a goal, you work hard towards that, but uh, the spiritual path is different. Uh, it's almost like you let go of the goals and by letting go of the goals, it sort of happens by itself, but it kind of evolves. Uh, so I would focus on the simple things. How can I be more kind? Yeah, that's kind of the easy things. How can I just be more gentle in my life? How can I support other people? How can I give coffee to people? <laughs> yeah, that was that was beautiful. I mean, that's really nice. I mean, you know, part, part of the, the nice thing about getting a cup of coffee is not so much the coffee, but it's the kindness of the people behind it. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing when that happens. And uh, I, I was just walking down the street here before, and I... You know, from in my culture, you don't say hello to people on the street. But here, you say hello to people on the street, right? And I said, hello, good morning. People respond, you know, initially look at you a bit funny, but then they can, okay, fine, we'll, we'll say good morning. That's kind of, that's kind of really nice. And so this is really, again, this is where it is at. That is what we should focus on, rather than focus on the stream entry or, you know, letting go of the three petters or, or whatever. Because that's where the practice really is. And, and often this idea of getting somewhere, it leads to frustration, it leads to problems, it leads to uh, living in the future a little bit because not looking at the here and now. So, it, I mean, it is kind of a goal in a sense, uh, but it's a goal that is way, way at the back of your mind. It's not something that you keep at the front of your mind to motivate you. Uh, motivation should just be to be kind and then get the immediate results of that kindness. Okay, I feel good. Uh, when you have a kind thought about someone, you feel good straight away. Yeah, it's straight away. It has its own instant reward when you do that. That is what you should focus on. One of the kind of big mistakes that people often use, they, they, you know, the three 
so-called lower fetters that are the things that you let go when you become a stream mentor, letting go of uh, uh, precepts and observances, sila bata paramasa in Pali, and uh, so people often sila here really is precepts. It's like it's like morality, right? Letting go of morality. And then people think, oh yeah, we're letting go morality. Okay, I better not hold on to my morality so much, yeah, because if I hold on to it too much, I'm not letting go of this fetter. I'm not going to become a stream mentor. So I better kind of relax with my morality. That's the wrong way of thinking here, yeah. yeah? And, the, and the reason is because these fetters, uh, they are not let go of by, by how we practice now. That's not how, I mean, we don't practice now and then somehow that leads to letting go of them in the future. What we practice now is the Noble Eightfold Path. And then this is the result of practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, so you don't actually let go of these things. Uh, uh, you know, letting go of them is not part of the practice. That's what I mean to say. It's the result of the practice. And the result of the practice is just the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, and I hear this all the time. Oh, I shouldn't hold on so much to my, my precepts. No, please hold on to your precepts. If you don't hold on to them, uh, you're not going to keep them. Yeah, it's as simple as that. Uh, a little bit of holding on is necessary. Yeah. And this is kind of this idea that uh, attachment in the world is a, is a gradual letting go of attachments. Uh, and we all we need to have things to hold on to. Uh, and the reason we need that is because we have a sense of self. Uh, a sense of self is, uh, by definition, it is holding on. Uh, that's what a sense of self is. Uh. A sense of self means that you identify as something. Uh, and of course, that is going to be where you hold on. Uh. So if we're going to identify with anything... Uh, Identify with being moral. Identify with being kind. Yeah? Then you have a wholesome sense of self that is going to lead you in the right direction. And then you grab onto a higher rung of the, attach- of the attachment ladder. Yeah? And you get more refined attachments. And then gradually you overcome the, uh, the path in this way. Yeah? But you don't kind of let go of the fundamental things too early. If you do, you're never going to get anywhere. Yeah? So the next, the doubt is another one of the three kind of lower factors. Well, uh, you know that that's not something you can really do anyway. The way to overcome doubt is to, according to the suttas, is to investigate uh, the teachings, yeah, and to practice. And then by investigating and practicing, uh, you overcome doubt. Uh, and the last one is sakayaditi, the uh, the view that there is uh, an existing uh, personality. Yeah. So that that is kind of the thing which is the fundamental thing that you overcome when you become a stream mentor. Yeah. And that's how you know, really, I suppose, that you are a stream mentor, but it's very easy to delude yourself. Uh, there are lots of so-called stream mentors in this world, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they are, and that's, so lots of kind of, uh, they're very, very easy to overestimate yourself. Uh, I don't know if you've been on the, on the internet, you have all the internet arahants, have you seen those? Uh, famous internet arahants, it's like arahant so-and-so on the, the, home, the homepage, right? Arahant so-and-so, uh, and, okay, that's not an arahant. <laughs> that's absolutely sure. Yeah. So there is a lot of overestimation in the world. So uh, really, the, what you should do if you think that maybe you are a streamer, you should go to some teacher who can point you in the right direction. Yeah, yeah someone you have reasonable uh, confidence in might know what they're talking about. Uh, but again, it's very hard. You don't really know <laughs> who, who in this world knows what they're talking about. Uh, so it's, it's difficult. Uh. Anyway, something like something like that would be my yeah. Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Bonte, for being here today. Uh, really appreciated your your thoughts. Um, 
You said something this morning about uh, the Buddha didn't teach Anapanasati that way. Uh, I'm wondering if you're referring to, like when I learned, uh, when I first learned how to meditate, uh, you know, it was about you have to figure out where you're, you're feeling the breath in your body. And it's like, okay, is it in the tip of your nose? Is it is your chest uh, or your or your stump your belly expanding and contracting, mm. and uh, that was how I was taught to um, to have attention. Now, is that is there something that uh, you know? It seems like it takes a lot of effort. Um, so, yeah. do you have anything to say about <laughs> what you were thinking? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what I was thinking is just that the way. The Buddha teaches uh, mindfulness of breathing in the Anapanasati Sutta is that he starts off by laying the foundation for the practice, right? Uh, and so he says there that you uh, uh, you sit down, uh, yeah, and uh, when you sit down, you straighten the body, Ujjukayang uh, Panidaya, something like that. Uh, and I always like to quote a bit of Pali because that gives me more authority, you know. So <laughs> I'm very naughty. Yeah. So you, st- you straighten the body. Uh, and then it says you establish mindfulness, right? That's what it says in the sutta. And be, this is all before you start watching the breath. So you have to, you should, ideally, we should have mindfulness first. And this is what I mean by, you know, getting things in the right order and uh, not watching going to the meditation object too quickly. Because if you go straight to the meditation object uh, and the mindfulness is not established, uh, the only way you're going to be able to watch the breath is through willpower, uh, and the Buddha says willpower is not really the way to go. Huh? You know, I mean, a little bit of willpower is going to happen anyway because you can't avoid it. Huh? But we want to minimize the idea of willpower. Huh? And so the only way to do that is to establish mindfulness first. So a lot of the practice when we sit down is about allowing the mindfulness to arise. Sitting back, waiting, Guiding the mind, guiding it away from desires and, and ill will, yeah, finding that neutral balance somewhere in between, uh, not having any pain or pleasures uh, through the body, so the body becomes irrelevant. Uh, this is the kind of definition of the middle way in the suttas. Uh, and then as you do that, uh, when mindfulness arises, uh, then you wait. And often the best way, the way I like to think about breath meditation is to wait for the breath to come to you. Uh, yeah, if you go to the breath, that's kind of the definition of willpower. But if you wait for the breath to arise, well, then you are doing almost the breath meditation almost automatically. Oops, suddenly the breath is there. Okay, I guess I'm doing meditation now. And then it lasts for a while and it disappears again. And then you wait for it to re-arise. And so this is kind of the what I meant by there's a tendency, you know, I there are certain systems of meditation where you are told, you come into the meditation center, you kind of get sit, sit, sat down on a seat and you get told, okay, watch the breath. And you don't really get told that actually breath meditation happens in a certain context. It happens, you know, at the, with a certain foundation. And uh, that foundation is really the, uh, what I was getting at when I was said, said this morning. Does that answer your question, Ron? Yes, thank you very much. Yep, great. Um, how does one 
come to terms with uh, the severe emotional trauma from my combat, uh, PTSD. Okay. Uh, that is a uh, very good question. <laughs> that's usually how you say it. When you don't know what to say, you say that's a very good question. <laughs> but no, it is, a, it is. Of course it is a good question. And uh, the... Uh, I, I think the uh, the answer is gradually. Yeah, that's kind of the answer usually. Yeah. And I think with many things, it is. Uh, I mean, it's good to do spiritual practice, but with many things like that, it's also good to get some professional counseling, right? Uh, because actually, these things are really hard to deal with. And sometimes, uh, professional counselors or psychologists they will have some kind of things up their sleeve that we don't necessarily have in Buddhism, right? Uh, because the Buddha was not someone who. The, the uh, I mean, of course. It is about finding happiness and letting go of suffering, yeah. but it's not kind of meant for people who have had specifically difficult experiences in life. Yeah. So, uh, you know, live, live well, yeah, do the right thing. And if the, the trauma is with other people, which it often is in life with other people, yeah, then just gradually learn to see those people in a different way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we all had difficult experiences with people in life. I've had my share of difficult experiences with people. But as you practice this path, you learn that actually these people didn't know what they were doing, right? They had no idea. And the more you see that, the more you see that they were actually acting against their own self-interest. If someone treats you badly, actually they are making bad karma. They, they're going to feel miserable in the future, they think what they're doing is going to bring them happiness, but actually it brings them suffering here. And once you start to get that, you start to feel a bit sorry for them, right? They don't know what they're doing, for goodness sake. Yeah. And then actually, gradually, gradually, slowly, slowly, you can actually start to have compassion for even the perpetrators of crimes in this world there, because they are foolish, right? Eventually you have compassion for everyone. I mean, the victims is kind of fairly obvious, but even the perpetrators, because in the long run, they may suffer actually more than the victims, uh, which is kind of a weird thing, a weird way of looking at things. Uh, that's kind of the Buddhist outlook for you. Uh, it's kind of sometimes a bit upside down there. Uh, yeah. So go, go with it slowly, you know, take it stage by stage. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I think it may be difficult for you to see now that the trauma can come to an end. Uh, but if you do it stage by stage, avenues open up that you may never have knew even existed or were possible. So, uh. Venerables, would you like to... Uh, I, I forgot that you were here completely, and now, now I'm reminded. <laughs> would, would, you, would you like to uh, add something? Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit. You, can can we have the microphone, please? Uh, for the, yeah. Okay. And we can see what you think of this, Ajahn. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think when you're working with, it could be, it could be the whole mess of not just the things that happen to us, but the things that we've done also. Because we're also caught in a system and we're also caught in conditioning. And um, when it comes to PTSD and trauma, I'm I'm not a psychologist, so there's a lot I don't know. But um, I've been, for a long time, working with the first three noble truths as a way to work with that. And it fits in very nicely with some therapies like somatic experiencing where you're turning towards that feeling in your body and being able to in a in a supported environment stay present with what it what the feeling is until you can really 
see that change and dissolve. And it, it is really good, as, as Ajahn said, to get support from someone who's trained to guide someone through those processes. Uh, but it, it really has a, a deep effect when you're able to uh, let that unravel through the body because the body holds on to those things. And then, of course, everything Ajahn said about how we see um, ourselves and others and that compassion and kindness. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Hi. Um, my question is a little bit related to the previous one, um, but in my situation, um, I've been targeted a lot. Um, you know, growing up as a mixed race person, um, being LGBTQ, um, gender nonconforming, and um, and uh, having periods of homelessness in my life um, as an adult. And I now live in a vehicle, and I have people come at me sometimes. Um, someone came at me yesterday um, telling me that I couldn't park where I was on the side of the road. And, um, you know, in that moment, in those moments when someone is coming, you know, being confrontational with me, I find it really difficult to hold on to my compassion. Um, I have so much also PTSD around being targeted. Um, and um, and then it came up today in the meditation, you know, and it's like playing in my mind. And I'm saying I want to let this go. And it's, you know, it's just there. It's like I can see this person's face. Um, and, um, and I was thinking in your example about, uh, you know, the people, the person who was, um, you know, finding happiness um, in those difficult circumstances of the war that, you know, um, I'm assuming he wasn't one of the people that was taken off the concentration camps. And um, so what if you're, I mean, obviously my situation is not equal to that, but what do you do if you're in a situation of being the targeted party, um, you know, to find happy? It's very hard to find happiness when someone's in my face and telling me, you know, I can't exist where I'm existing. So, um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, indeed. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, 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 this is why sometimes the practice is uh, difficult, right? And then in a sense, this is also why the practice is so rewarding, because uh, gradually, gradually, you, you know, hopefully you will be able to deal even with these very difficult situations. Uh, and the person, of course, who benefits the most from that will be yourself, uh, because uh, the idea of being able to let go and have compassion is just very, very beneficial. The, the person who benefits the most is always ourselves in this kind of situation. So, so I agree with you. It is very challenging. Yeah. But it is um, also, in a sense, what the Buddha is asking us to do. You know, the very, one of the most famous similes of the Buddha is the famous simile of the saw. And the simile of the saw is, the, uh, is a simile where you know, bandits kind of get hold of you uh, and they pin you to the ground uh, 
and they take out the big saw and they hack you to bits with a saw. And the Buddha says that whoever gives rise to a mind of ill will or a mind of whatever you know negative mind state, while they do that, is not practicing my teaching. Yeah. <laughs> so the Buddha is, you know, he's basically setting the bar incredibly high. And what that means, it doesn't mean that we should despair if we can't clear that bar because it's very hard to clear. But what it means is that this practice can have some extraordinary results. If we do practice it in the right way, if we keep on going, even though we may not be able to understand how it can be done, if we keep going, those results will eventually happen. And that is kind of the promise of the Buddha. And that is what is so extraordinary. So even though you, you know, and I, I, I can obviously not fully understand what you're talking about because I'm not in that situation myself, but I have some idea because we all had difficult experiences in our life. Uh, even though you cannot see the solution right now to that kind of situation, keep on going and one day the solution will appear. Suddenly you have put all of these things behind you and you say, wow, I can do it now. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And you will actually see those people in a different way. You see yourself in a different way. Yeah. And you're able to let go of things that actually, for most people, are impossible to let go of. Uh, and then you know that you're really reaping the benefits of this practice. Uh. So just keep going. Uh. Yeah, just don't, don't lose heart. Uh, know that these results are possible uh, because there are people in the world... I meet people in my life who are extraordinary. Yeah, people who are just uh, never get angry at all. I, <laughs> I, I have lived with people for 30 years who I have never seen angry. And that's kind of, is that possible? It turns out it is possible. So when you see these things, you know that the path kind of is, is there. You know that things are, that seem impossible in the world actually can be done. So uh, please just uh, carry on slowly, slowly, slowly. Keep on understanding what the Buddha meant by these things. Uh, try to deepen your appreciation of these teachings and gradually as you do this, uh, I, uh, things will happen for you. Uh, you want to come back on that one? You're very welcome to come back if you like. Uh. Gone, all right, okay. Yeah, yeah please. Please, please, please. This morning when you were telling the stories about the, the man from Norway and, um, and the, some of the people's experience during the war in Ukraine, I mean, I'd heard you tell these stories before, but this morning something came to mind that I hadn't thought of before, and I wonder what you think. Because there's a component there in both cases of having to do without the things those people were used to in their life. Mm. So there's an element of renunciation there. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, well, maybe there, in, in addition to all the things you said about you know, coming together with others and having a purpose and being kind to each other, more caring, that's all incredibly powerful. I totally agree. But it mm. occurred to me that there's also that having to do without some of what you're used to and seeing that you can do it. Yeah. And there's a kind of courage that arises. And do you think that might also be a contributing factor to that happiness? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. 
that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the fact that you are, in a sense, renouncing and you're living and you kind of become strong through renouncing, in a sense. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that uh, there may very well be something to that. I think it does make you strong. Whenever you renounce something, you give something up. Uh, there's something in your mind which actually makes you a stronger person. Uh, it enables you to renounce even more in the future. Uh, and uh, there you are faced with it. And if you, because you are faced with it, you're kind of forced to renounce, or either you renounce or you suffer even more. So if you choose the right track, then uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, yeah, I think you may very well be right about that, actually. Uh, I'll reflect on a bit more and then kind of <laughs> see what comes out of that one. Uh, yeah. Ajahn, yeah. in the morning when you mentioned the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, yeah. I think we discussed this in the midweek KBB meeting. There's a mention that the Buddha, he can only, I can't, don't quote me on this, but he said that you know he's in pain, he's dying, uh, yeah. but he say he's, he, he dwells in the signless concentration of the mind to, to survive, you know, to, to deal with the pain. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, when Mahakasapa was Practicing, I think he's also being told by the Buddha to to focus on the silence concentration of the mind. Who? who? Mahakasapa. Mahakasapa. Ah, yeah. Okay, was it? Okay, right. Okay. Yeah, okay, I think okay. so. Yeah. In the Animito Sutta, I I, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I just I just want to understand what silence concentration of the mind is. If you if you have <laughs> any <Yeah. laughs> any insights. Any insights. I well. Uh, a sign in this, uh, the Pali word is nimitta, yeah? and so a sign is what, um, it's kind of how you recognize things, you recognize things by the sign, yeah, you, okay, person, okay, what is a person, a sign of a person has two arms, two legs, something like that, there's a kind of a person and a head, and uh, so the things are recognized through the signs, uh, and if something has no sign, it means that all you're seeing is impermanence, you're seeing change all the time, uh, so the signlessness is really a kind of, a, it's a deep, uh, a deep, um, contemplation or a deep focus on things being changing all the time, looking at change uh, and just allowing things to, you know, you, all you see is change, you see nothing kind of inherent in anything, yeah? everything's just moving moving all the time. Uh, that is kind of the idea of science, so you have this kind of three types of meditation, you have the, uh, the um, uh, sunyata uh, samadhi, which is emptiness concentration, not seeing any self, and then you have the uh, animita samadhi, which is kind of not seeing anything as permanent, seeing changing all the time, then you have the apanihita samadhi, which is a, a, a non-direction um, that is usually connected with, I think, with suffering. Yeah? So it's kind of the three characteristics uh, that are focused on in a certain way. Yeah? So uh, how does that work and why does it work? Well, I don't really know. I think any kind of deep samadhi would probably do at that particular point. Uh, not sure why he mentioned the animita samadhi. I mean, a jhana state would be have a similar kind of effect. Yeah, The body is gone. Yeah? Uh, but maybe it is because he Buddha uses different kinds of meditations depending on circumstances or context. Uh, maybe he wants to talk about different meditations to leave those uh, teachings to posterity so that we have, have access to them later on. Maybe something like that. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why he talked about that teaching in that context. Uh, but any kind of deep samadhi will kind of take you out of the, uh, you know, away from the pain in the body. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, to clear my mind, uh, sometimes when I'm going into meditation, I go to gratitude and love 
and it kind of washes through yeah. me, and I yeah. feel like it's a cleansing. Is there? Um, would you advise I continue to do this, or is there any? Does it make me not neutral enough in my mind, or is there any <laughs> thing that that is slowing me down by doing that? It's good. That's marvelous. That's wonderful. Yeah, excellent. Uh, splendid. <laughs> no, it, so. Um, no, that's great. I mean, the whole, one of the kind of things about meditation practice is to give rise to positive feelings, you know. And if you're able to do that, that's, that's wonderful because that is, uh, you know, the, one of the roots of meditation practice. Uh, uh, the Buddha always talks about the six anusatis. Anusatis are the six recollections. Uh, and one of them is the recollection of your sila, yeah, the sila anusati or chaga anusati, the recollection of your generosity. And uh, whatever way you're able to give rise to those positive feelings, they become the foundation of the meditation practice. So what you would want to do is you want to incorporate that into watching the breath. Yeah, so you want to bring that joy that you have to the breath. You can maybe have gratitude to the breath. Yeah, Thank you, breath, for being there. Without you, I wouldn't have gone very far, right? <laughs> it's true. So you can have gratitude to your breath. It's like, and you can see your breath as your friend. Yeah, friend. I mean, if we are practicing breath meditation, it's like we are going with this friend on this kind of really interesting journey of meditation practice. Yeah, so you kind of think of your breath as your kalyanamitta or whatever, and you have gratitude, and you bring that joy together with the breath meditation. I would really recommend people to do breath meditation because breath meditation is the meditation that the Buddha really teaches in the suttas. Yeah. Uh, very fascinating is that when we, we often talk about Satipatthana practice, yeah, Satipatthana being the, uh, um, uh, sometimes called the foundations of mindfulness, which is not a good translation, maybe the establishings of mindfulness or the applications of mindfulness or just mindfulness meditation or, or whatever. Uh, foundations of mindfulness is a, not a good translation because it, uh, anyway, let's, let's, let's leave that aside for now. We can discuss translation some other time. Uh, but his, what he says, what is interesting, is that um, Satipatthana is fulfilled by mindfulness of breathing. That's how you fulfill it. Yeah? All the four Satipatthanas are fulfilled that way. So all we have to do from where we are now to all the way to the end of the path is watching the breath. Yeah? Very simple. So simple. How come we're not arahants already? That's what I want to know. <laughs> we should be there. It's so easy. And of course it is easy. The instructions are very simple. But actually putting them into practice turns out to be not not so easy. Yeah? The path can really be summarized into two things, uh, kindness uh, and mindfulness of breathing. Yeah? Yeah? Those two things together, that's the whole path. Uh, and it was just about, about putting it into practice uh, and then you're kind of in business. So bring that joy with the breath uh, and then see if you can make the, your meditation really come alive by bringing these things together. See how deep you can go. Uh, yeah. Yes, at the back there. Yeah, please. Uh, do we have a microphone again? So about the Satipatthana Sutta, and you said that can be done through um, mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. But um, from what it seems to me that um, Satipatthana Sutta, it's it's like these drop down menu that you can <laughs> you click on one and yeah. there's like a bunch more showing up, yeah. Yeah. and you click on them and like a bunch more show up, yeah. Yeah. like the thirty two parts and then. Earth, water, wind. So, can that really be done through mindfulness of breathing, or do you have to some sort of go through them systematically, like a 
like scanning through different these drop down menu. Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. Yeah, so uh, the uh, the answer is that uh, you know the uh, the Buddha says specifically that uh, mindfulness of breathing completes and fulfills uh, satipatthana. Yeah, he says that specifically. Yeah. So actually, according to the Buddha, that's all you have to do. Yeah. But of course, the reality is that you may get stuck. Yeah. So what happens when you get stuck? You're watching the breath, and it doesn't get anywhere, and then you get tired, you get fed up with the breath, and, you know, it doesn't really work. Yeah. And so then the question is, well, something is blocking you uh, yeah, from actually being able to do that meditation properly. Uh, and that is where some of these other things come in. What are the blockages uh, for the breath meditation to develop naturally? Uh, and uh, one of the main blockages uh, is our attachment to the sensory world, yeah, the world of the five senses. Uh, that is one of the main blockages. And this is where the idea of uh, you know, the 31 parts of the body, not 32, but 31, you know that? Uh, I, that's, yeah, the brain, exactly the brain. Yeah, so now you use your brain to figure that one out. That's interesting. So, <laughs> so I'm saying that because I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that later on why that is interesting. But uh, 31 versus 32, yeah? So, <laughs> why? So, then we use those kind of meditations, the 31 parts of the body, to let go of the senses a little bit, specifically to the body. Yeah, because attachments to the body, attachment to the senses are very closely related to each other. So that's where that particular practice comes in. It lessens the attachment and holding to the body. That allows the breath meditation to go deeper later on. Yeah? And then you practice the breath meditation in that way. Yeah? But actually, you, so, so part of this whole thing is, yes, you do the breath meditation, but you're also aware of the obstacles. You're aware of, what, of the you know, you only go so far, okay, you need to do something. So now I need to do something more, which is like a contemplation or an understanding of the nature of these things. Uh, letting them go, then come back to the breath again. Uh. So uh, I would uh, say that the breath is plenty enough. Uh, and there's actually very many interesting things that comes uh, from this idea. Because if you read the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha's uh, explanation of the mindfulness of breathing, uh, it has 16 steps. Are you, you, you know how this works? 16 steps. Um, so according to... Um, yeah. So uh, I I'm, I'm took the Satipatthana course um, from Bar Center of Buddhist Study. Yeah. And that will be the first one. And the next one will be Anapanasati. So, so say, say again. What would be the first one? So the first... Um, so this is taught by Bhikkhu Analeo. Yeah. And the first one is Satipatthana. And then after you complete that yeah. and you uh, explore it a little bit on your own, yeah. then you can start looking into Anapanasati. And so, so that's how I've been thinking about this. Okay. Well, I, I'm not sure exactly what he has said. Actually, I'm going to visit him when I go there. So I'll be interested. I'll, I'll ask him what he, what he means by this. <laughs> so uh, I... the. Um, but in the suttas, the Buddha is quite clear yeah, that Anapanasati fulfills uh, uh, Satipatthana practice. So if you go to the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, sutta number 118, called the Anapanasati Sutta, the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, and you read it for yourself, you can see, see it for yourself, that actually what, what it says in there. Uh, and uh, there are some very interesting consequences from that, because, uh, you know, the, the uh, Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta is divided into 16 steps, uh, uh, four times four, so four tetrads. Uh, and each one of those tetrads uh, 
relates to one of the four satipatthanas. Yeah? So the first four steps relates to the kaya nupasana, the contemplation of the body. The second four relate to the vedanupasana, contemplation of feeling. The third one, chitanupasana. The last one, dhammanupasana. So, uh, the, um, so if you take the second one, which is the contemplation of feelings, uh, yeah, that is equivalent to the second tetrad, uh, the second um, of the Anapanasati Sutta. Now, if you read the Anapanasati Sutta, the second tetrad, it's all about pleasant feelings. If you go to the Satipatthana Sutta on, on uh, contemplation of feelings, uh, it talks about knowing pain, yeah, physical pain, mental pain, all of these kind of things. So how can it be that watching the breath and all only experiencing pleasant feelings actually fulfills the contemplation of painful feelings? It's not a question. I, I, I must kind of give, give, give pause because I'm going to see the expression on your face. <laughs> no, I'm, I apologize. I'm being naughty. I, I, I'm taught by Ajahn Brahm to be naughty. That's kind of how we, how we do things in our monastery. So the, so the, uh, the answer is, right, that you, when, you, when you have a pleasant feeling yeah, in the mind or whatever, piti or sukha or whatever, the painful feelings have already been overcome. The painful feelings are completely gone at that particular point. Uh, and the way to contemplate certain things, the most powerful way of contemplating something is not in their presence, but by their absence. So if you see painful feelings in the body, usually you are told, okay, go to Vipassana retreat, contemplate the feelings in the body. Yes, you can maybe get a little bit of insight from that. But the most powerful insight into painful feelings are by contemplating them in their absence. Yeah, because when something is completely gone, that is the only time you can understand something. Yeah. It's like the old simile of the tadpole becoming a frog. Yeah, when as long as the tadpole is in the water, cannot really understand water because it's always in water. How can you understand something that you're always surrounded by? Once you, the tadpole becomes a frog, jumps out of the water. Oh yeah, now I get it. That's what, what water was. Uh, in the same way, when something disappears completely, is completely gone. That is the only point you can really understand it properly. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful thing to my mind. Yeah, you don't have to contemplate this blooming. Pains, right? Just let go of the pains. Let us go straight to the bliss. Isn't that great? And this is kind of my kind. This is what I, because I'm a disciple of Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm is kind of the bliss kind of person, right? So go to the bliss right away. Forget about the pain. And to me, that is a far more satisfactory path. And so there isn't really much explanation in the suttas anywhere apart from this particular thing in Satipatthana Sutta that you have to contemplate pain. No. Contemplate pain through its absence. It's far more, far more powerful and also far more pleasant. You want? To, please come back on that one. Please tell me off if you think I'm, uh, I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, I'll check the sutta first. Yeah, check out the sutta and see what you think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's always good to hear from someone with depth of experience. Yeah. I'm gonna. If you if you write down what Ben Analio said to you, I'm gonna. I will confront him when I see him at Barry. <laughs> <laughs> see what he says. <laughs> so, uh, Can we do one or more, one or two more from online? Yeah, please. Yeah, let's okay. do take some couple more online. Yeah. Um, uh, all right. So there's maybe two short ones from uh, YouTube. Uh, Ajahn, can you talk about the role of meditation in Buddha's gradual training? And then another one, 
what should one do when a spiritual mentor is unavailable? Right. Well, the, uh, the second one first, the spiritual mentor is always available because the spiritual mentor, number one, is the, are the suttas. Yeah? So the, the Buddha is always there. The Buddha is still talking to us through the suttas. So take the Buddha as your teacher. I think one of the um, kind of really um, the uh, mistakes that we make in modern Buddhism is that we take everyone as our teacher except the Buddha. Yeah, and kind of this Ajahn, that Aya, that this Bhante, this whatever, and the Buddha is kind of forgotten in all this, even though he is the original teacher of teachers, and he is the Ur teacher, yeah, the Uber teacher. Still, we forget about <laughs> we forget about the Buddha. So take the Buddha; he's always there, and then you are okay. And if you can find a kind of living teacher as well, that can be helpful. Yeah, because it's good to have someone who can ask questions sometimes. But it's not 100% required. Uh, and then there are, of course, there's the YouTube teachers. You can take some of these YouTube teachers as well and see how that goes there. And the uh, meditation the, um, on the Buddhist path, uh, uh, the purpose of meditation on the Buddhist path really is to, if you look at the Noble Eightfold Path, what is the Noble Eightfold Path? And what it is, it is a path of purification. Yeah? You purify yourself. Uh, it you start off with the right view. That's just to get you going. And from that right view comes the right intention. And after right intention is all about purification. That's why it's all about morality. It's about right effort, which is about purifying the mind. After right effort comes the right sati, the right mindfulness, uh, which is breath meditation, satipatthana meditation. Uh, and the purpose of that is to remove the last little defilements of the mind uh, so it enables you to attain samadhi, the deep meditations, uh, yeah, the very profound stages on the path. Uh. So that is the purpose of meditation, is the kind of the final purification of the mind uh, for the mind to access uh, the deep samadhi, the deep stillnesses of the, uh, that are there, which are required to uh, culminate all the way to the very end of the path. Uh. That's really what it is about. And there's more to meditation, and there's more to mental development than that. There's also contemplation and reflecting on the teachings. This is also extremely important, developing your perceptions, seeing the world in the way the Buddha saw the world. All of these things are part of the cultivation, but meditation proper, uh, which is just watching the breath, is really about that. All right, so let's have a break. It's already... Uh, uh, 132, uh, and then we can do some more meditation or whatever afterwards. So let's